0: Hey, this is Joel Allen, the host of Biblical Conversations, honest conversation about difficult aspects of the Bible. Biblical Conversations is an invitation to a new way of thinking about Scripture. Typically, we come to Scripture looking for answers or to find wisdom, the word of the Lord, or to find insight into the human condition. And while those are great questions to ask of Scripture, this podcast is about a new way of thinking about the Bible, a new way of looking at Scripture as an extended series of conversations, biblical conversations, conversations that are often in conflict and just as often finding conflict resolution. The Bible, like Jesus himself, is fully human and fully divine. And here we're going to explore the human side of this equation as a portal to deeper appreciation and deeper insight into the Bible as the very Word of God. The Bible was written by many different people with different ideas and different agendas. The authors of Scripture were people like you and me about the task of understanding this Yahweh who led them up out of Egypt and into the land of promise and who comes to us in the person of Jesus, our Christ. The Bible, as a fully human document, conveys ideas about God that are in conflict with other ideas about God in the Bible. The Bible is a human story about how these ancient people of faith with conflicting notions and competing understandings learned how to resolve conflicts and develop communities built on shalom. And this is why this is so important. We still live in community and we still have conflict. Conflict that's getting worse by the day. We still seek shalom. We need to find shalom, God's peace. There's an art to learning to live within the bonds of peace and by divine grace in blessed community. And I believe that the most exalted, at least for me, the most transformative way we can experience the scriptures as as the very words of God is to grapple with them in all their humanity. I've come to love the Bible even more passionately as God's word because it comes to us in the dust of history, the grind of politics, and the gore of warfare. It conveys a history generated by people of faith on a complex and meandering journey of redemption and grace. The words of these particular people have become for us the very word of God, the word of God for the people of God, Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, a gift that points the way toward reclaiming blessed communities of shalom today and to God's eternal kingdom. Are you up for a new way of engaging in the holy scriptures of our faith? Let's have a biblical conversation. Hello, this is Joel Allen, the host of Biblical Conversations. Biblical Conversations is a podcast devoted to the difficult aspects of the Bible, an honest conversation concerning difficult aspects of the Bible with a goal to uh, seek understanding that leads to deepened faith and enriched discipleship. In this podcast, I have a conversation with Carl Kroger. Carl is a friend of mine. He's a pastor of Piedmont United Methodist Church in our Grace United Methodist Church in Piedmont, South Dakota. He's a graduate of Candler School of Theology in Atlanta, Georgia. And before that, he uh, has graduated from the School of Religion or the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Dakota Wesleyan University, which is where I presently teach. Carl is the uh, happy husband of his wife, Michelle. They have three children and they're going to be having another very shortly. And so I'm especially appreciative to Carl for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Carl and I in this podcast have a conversation about intergenerational punishment in the Bible. Now I did a a podcast on this topic uh, several weeks ago I had a conversation with Adam Ragels about the topic, and Adam added a lot of great information to ask questions. One of the things I like to do is develop a topic and then have a conversation with a lay person and with a clergy person. And so we kind of triangulate between perspectives of a lay person, perspectives of a per- clergy person with all the pastoral concerns that they have, and and then a, uh, I'm a scholar, so per, per, the perspective of a scholar. And um, so the issue is, does God judge people for the sins of their ancestors? Some places in the Bible say yes, some places in the Bible say no, and the fact is we have this conversation going on in the ancient world on this topic. And so in uh, in Exodus chapter 20, in right in the 10 commandments, in the second commandment, it says, do not make for yourself an idol because I, the Lord, your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for the parents' sin, even to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But I'm loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation, which obviously is kind of uh, just a poetic language really doesn 't mean you 're supposed to count the generations and then god 's love stops. It just means you know for for eternity and, but it says and the problematic part we all we don 't have a problem with god 's love for a thousand generations that we do have a problem with the notion that God could punish people for the sins of their ancestors even a third and fourth generation. And what the interesting thing is just the way that we could scratch our heads and go, how could God do such a thing? How could God judge people for things that they didn't even do for the sins of their ancestors? It seems so troublesome. And, and what the podcast the, uh, does, and I do encourage you to go back and listen to it. But what that podcast does is it explores the way that the Bible itself has the this internal conversation going on where certain people are saying, I don't think God really is that way. I don't think God judges people for the the sins of their ancestors. So clearly Exodus 20 is claiming that God does. And then Moses and then Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 18 says, God, everybody's responsible for their own sins. God judges you for your sins individually. And there's a whole, whole panoply of other Uh, opinions in between some some texts just kind of softening this down and softening it up uh, and kind of minimizing the uh, intergenerational punishment aspect so there's a conversation going on within the bible and i did a whole podcast conversation with adam about that so I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's the second one in the feed. But but then what I'm doing with Carl here is having another conversation with a clergy person uh, about this same issue. And um, and And then Carl has a lot of pastoral insights and some very good questions. And so I think we had a wonderful conversation and I'm very appreciative to Carl. You don't have to go back and listen to the other podcast. I think I've summarized it well enough for you, but I encourage you to listen to the full thing. Okay here's my conversation with Carl about intergenerational punishment. So Carl, what is your perspective? What are the questions you might have about uh, the whole issue of intergenerational punishment and, and the topic that we've been discussing? What are specific questions that you have?
1: You know, for me, it's, it's really fascinating to see, what appears to be this shift and this movement, and and progression—it's mm-hmm. not completely um, consistent in one direction. There are some exceptions to that, but in general, um, as you have, have shared, there's uh, a, sh- yeah. a shift toward um, less generations being in trouble for the actions of right. the original, and in essence, more more grace and more mercy. Yeah. As well as individual responsibility. And what I, what I see is a God who is uh, more gracious than we realize. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a a beautiful thing. And I I don't think it's that God is necessarily becoming more gracious. It's that we're understanding God more so in that way and more clearly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really really good point because that's something when you talk about this kind of thing especially progressive revelation it comes off to people else almost as if God's like this finite person that's progressing and changing over time and I I totally agree that this is not an issue of God changing it's more a matter of people understanding and and using reason and experience to to understand God more over time and that you know they're people later were thinking, how could God actually do that? Yeah. So, so yeah, very good point. It's not a matter that God changes. It's more a matter of our understanding of God progresses. So,
1: yeah. Which, which also raises the question, what were some of the influences uh, around people? um, Yeah. And what other understandings were there of how other gods of other Religions worked. Um, is there any sort of uh, crossover that we're seeing there?
0: Well, that's also a really good question, and I think it's uh, the case that um, that there was no intergenerational co- uh, intergenerational punishment in the ancient Near East. Uh, that <clears throat> their their gods tended to be understood in more fickle ways. In other words, if you read the mythology of the ancient world, they don't there's not so much an understanding of God's kind of commitment to a, a covenant that lasts over a long period of time. The gods are kind of fickle and passionate. And in fact, the language that I often use here is passion and pathos. God is perspective, depra- uh, depicted in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets. Um, as a God who has a, a god of pathos mm. whose, d- whose anger is based on a f- infraction of a covenant it's not that God just gets ticked off okay and, and this this language you may be familiar with Abraham Joshua Heschel uh, a great Jewish scholar who wrote a wonderful wonderful book on on prophets and he uses this language actually he was a very uh, good part of the Martin Luther King's um, uh, march and he was, you know, marched with Martin Luther King over the uh, Edmund Pettus bridge and all of that. He was a, a leader in the uh, social rights movement. But, um, but at any rate, he points out that in ancient Near Eastern religions, that the, that the gods are, you know, distemperate and they're, uh, and in the myth of Atrahasis, one of our key texts, that the, these gods in the, in the Noah story or the, what they would, if not, they didn't use the name Noah, but, in the story of the flood, the gods led by Enil, who's, uh, en- Enlil, sorry, who's a storm god, um, decide to just obliterate humans because and the reason they do it in this text and the reason they flood the earth is because the humans have grown and become too so many that the gods, they're making too much noise and the gods can't sleep. And that's exactly the way the myth of Atrasis presents it. And other deities in the ancient Near East are... are in Egypt, Seth is the raging God. They're, these gods are seen as having fevers of the mind. And in some cases, you know, one God will go to another God and have to calm him down to, so he doesn't go and destroy all humanity, that kind of thing. And, and Yahweh is just not depicted that way. Now, there are some passages where Yahweh's wrath is hard to understand, you know, like where Moses gets, uh, he's going back from from Midian to Egypt and and God comes and is trying to kill him because he hasn't circumcised his son, Gershom. That's just a weird story. So yeah. there is some weird stuff there in the Bible, but um, but God in the Bible is much more. It's it's a covenant thing, and so uh, God's anger is based on covenant breaking, the covenant laws and covenant. So it's like God, look, I have this plan, this agreement that I'll set up with you, and here's the stipulations you keep the stipulations and everything will go well but if you break the stipulations then my protection backs off and you're gonna you know uh be you you will suffer and and there'll be hell to pay if you break the covenant because so it's it's anger based on a covenant infraction in the the scriptures and you could really see this in uh, the murmuring story. So like as the children of Israel are going to Mount Sinai, there are several stories where they murmur against the Lord and God kind of provides what they need and is kind of kind to them. But after the Sinai story, when they murmur, they get really punished, right? <laughs> and so it's like once there's a covenant and there are stipulations and there are laws and here's how you behave, then there's more wrath actually. And wrath is the one of the first places where wrath is really, Spoken of is with Moses when he asked God to send someone else in Exodus 4. But the next place, interestingly, and this is pertinent for what's going on in the United States right now Exodus 22 in the Book of the Covenant, where for abusing widows, orphans, and aliens, the anger of God, my anger will burn against you and you'll be punished if you, if you, um, so we should be more concerned about people. Approaching our borders from the south, I think, because uh, because this is something that's God's commitment to widows or orphans and aliens.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I love uh, that idea that uh, that God is revealed not to be this sort of um, deity that just has a, a fickle or, or arbitrary punch right. that, go- that goes out, but that it is based in, in covenant. And relationship, and um, wanting a people to live in a certain way um, that honors God as well as is mindful of the people around them, especially those who may be struggling.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really uh, a central part of the Book of the Covenant. This kind of justice for the poor, the those that are on the outsides of society that are easily those that don't have. The structures of the culture to protect them, and they're they're um, uh, unable to protect themselves and to and to provide for themselves. And it's it's if you're a part of the covenant that that's the plan that you are to care for them, and that you are to be the image of God, and that bring and by bringing God's redemptive healing pr- uh, presence into their existence. And so, yeah, yeah. It's interesting too, that the Hebrew scriptures never present wrath as like something essential to God's nature. It's not something that God delights in. Not, not like Seth is the raging one, you know, Mm, um, certain God is not, this is not part of God's nature. God's nature is love. And that's what I think Exodus 34 is trying to say. God will judge, but his nature is love. And, um, and that really comes through and, and um, as, you, as you think of first God, first John, actually in the new Testament where that uh, God is love language really um, comes through. So, yeah. How do you, what are your thoughts, Carl, about the pastoral side of this? In other words, do you have people who struggle with a sense of God's wrath, um, kind of an anxiety about, about being on the wrong side of God's wrath, uh, fear, maybe fear that they've uh, sinned against the Holy Spirit, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, I think it, it comes up in a number of different ways. Uh, the most prominent, I think, is back to that sense of how much is this a part of God's nature and who God is. And for many people, because of influence in influences in society, other uh, church traditions, upbringing, um, God's wrath is actually quite prominent for Mm -hmm. people. And I see that people can sometimes be captive to that fear Mm-hmm. In such a way that they're not free, even yeah. if they are fully committed Christians, um, there's still kind of that worry in the back of their mind that they're going to really upset God and mm-hmm. that something bad may happen in their lives um, because of because of the wrath of God. Yeah, and yeah. so uh, you see that struggle for some folks, and on the other side, there's folks who are quite comfortable with a God of of great wrath yeah um, and that God and God's own uh, self can can do what God pleases Mm -hmm. Um, and so when things happen that are uh, at the hand of God even if they may seem harsh to us that it's not our place to to judge or to question those things because God will do what God does. Yeah. And so that's, that's a different sort of pastoral conversation with people as yeah. I desire for, for folks to see God more graciously and lovingly.
0: Do you have many people that also struggle with actual anger at God? Instead of God being angry at me, me angry at God, that type mm-hmm. of thing.
1: right so that i find that that's the pastoral concern largely for folks outside the church mm -hmm. Um, most of those folks have given up on being here sunday morning yeah um because of what they've been taught and because of what they understand god has done in their lives uh they're at a place where they they don't have peace yeah um and some of those folks have walked away completely and, and others are still wrestling, but church is difficult. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, there's definitely a special place in my heart for those folks. Yeah. Um, you know, you sometimes, I, I heard that line about, you know, people talk about, you know, how mean God could be, and God did this, God did that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, they may say that they struggle to believe in a god like that and right. you know my response is yeah i i would struggle to believe in a god like that too yeah yeah
0: it is interesting to me just the degree to which the psalms provide permission to be angry at god in other words there's mm. just times where you're going to be angry and yeah. um, and there are places in the psalms where i'm just amazed i mean the psalmist is spitting angry and 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 he's you know shaking his fist at God and it's right there in sacred scripture, and uh, sometimes I think that that I mean sometimes you wonder like why would that why would that be a part of God's word and then you think, you know there are times where people need to know hey it's okay to be angry at God there are times where it's just a natural thing you're going to be angry it's just where you are right now and you need permission to be able to express that and God can take it,
1: and yeah absolutely so, yeah. Yeah, and I, I hope to help point people to, especially the Psalms, where yeah. they can see that, just that raw and brutal honesty. Mm-hmm. And then to see what comes from that type of um, freedom of expression in our faith.
0: Yeah. There's an okayness about being angry at God and and bickering with God almost uh, in, in the Jewish world, in the Psalms and in... Uh, rabbinic literature so
1: yeah yeah it, it's it's almost I, I love just sort of the the engagement um that we're able to have and, and and almost more richly so from that jewish tradition yeah of of being able to think about what's motivating god and and what's causing uh different thoughts and 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 even emotions. And and then even to to, to argue as Moses does um, to say now now God don't you've you've come so far with us I know right. you're upset um, but let's let's just keep going here. Yeah. You know one of the the questions that I think I, I often think about as we use this image of uh, the metaphor of God being a a divine parent Mm -hmm. uh just going back to ideas of of wrath and and love is i wonder about all of the different ways that god is presented in the scriptures Mm -hmm. and it i think one of the hardest things for me is feeling at times as though god is asking us to be more loving and gracious than God is able to be. Hmm. But I, I believe God is more gracious than I am because I'm such a, a flawed human being who, who falls short. Um, right. but as, especially as I think about, uh, becoming a, a parent again to, yeah. uh, a, a new little one. And times when I will be frustrated and impatient and, you know, it may be justifiably, uh, wanting to express some some anger um, mm-hmm. I, I believe that God is is going to be more gracious and loving than I am
0: yeah amen yeah I mean to think of what what the whole Jesus story is about you know Jesus identifying with us becoming one of us you know the whole idea of him the laying us out aside divine glory and taking up our humanity and identifying with us and then bearing the guilt and the 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 our punishment and and um and so that we can be in him. I mean that whole story of the atonement is such a confusing one on one level, but there's a basic structure to it of that is one of grace and love and compassion and identification and incarnation that that um takes this whole language of divine wrath to a point where okay god is angry at justifiably so at sin and yet god is driven by grace to and and love to identify with the sinner and to and to bring them home to god and so yeah it's a
1: Right. And in the precise moment when the wrath of God would be most justified, most um, legitimate, Mm -hmm. God chooses relationship. God chooses love.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks, Carl. I appreciate this time that we can share together. I just appreciate your friendship. I really have a lot of respect for you as a pastor and as an intellectual and as a just a good guy. And I know, Carl, you are a phenomenal dad with your fourth baby. Just any, any day.
1: Come- we as a family are uh, so thankful for your, your kindness and encouragement as well. Thanks, Carl.
0: I'd like to add this story to my conversation with Carl. Actually, I, I did record this when I was uh, doing my interview with Carl and didn't like the way it turned out, and so I'm going to record it again. Uh, in, the, in, in the conversation that Carl and I were having about the way the Bible gives us permission, especially in the Psalms, to express anger and frustration at God, there's a story the rabbis tell that I think illustrates this in a really interesting way. This might be a little troublesome if you if you want to just ignore this, that's fine. But it's just an interesting story. They so rabbis often would tell stories to illustrate their thoughts about the Bible, and and they're thinking about in this point the, the golden calf story in Genesis thirty and Exodus thirty two, and they're they're um, they're frustrated with why God is so angry at their ancestors for building this golden calf because they were thinking you know they lived in Egypt for four hundred years. Of course they're going to pick up on the ways of the Egyptians. You can't live around uh such a powerful culture for that long and not pick up on things. You're going to be influenced. And God sent them there. They are there, you know, because of a famine and it's, you know, God brought them down to Egypt. And so why is God angry at them for picking up on the ways of the Egyptians? And they tell a story to illustrate this. They said imagine if a man is a perfumer and he uh decides to Put up to build his perfume shop in a red light district because uh the prostitutes are such good uh customers and so he wants to be as close to his customers as possible and he builds his his um, his shop there and and raises his family right in this red light district area and then he's shocked a number of years later to realize that his sons are visiting the prostitutes. And he uh, finds out about one of them and grabs him by the ear and drags him out and is haranguing him in the street. How dare you defame our family and bring shame upon us as a family? And he's all upset at his son. And a neighbor, a friend of his, uh, is there and says, why are you upset at your son? You're the one who moved here. You're the one, you could have set your shop up somewhere else, but you moved here and it was your choice. And of course your son is going to do that. It's just, he, this is where he lives. This is his neighborhood. Of course, he's going to be affected by it. And so, and that illustrates this, uh, the the way in which rabbis were okay about expressing frustration and disdainment and dismay, and still being faithful and loving of God, and so uh, and the, it's, that takes the, that whole notion to a new level. So I also wanted to add a conversation that I didn't get a chance to, to mention when I was with Carl, and this is a topic I may do a whole episode on. It's interesting that in the Bible, there are two different ways that the Bible talks about divine wrath. In some places, the Bible talks about divine wrath as if it's like God's active punishment of sin. And in other places, God talks about divine wrath as if it's like God's allowing sin to experience its natural consequence, or the sinner to experience the natural consequences of their sins. As if divine wrath is like just backing away and allowing things to go their natural course without stepping in to protect. And so, um, and we can actually see that in the New Testament in Romans chapter one, verse 24, in this section talking about uh, God's wrath at sin, it says God, when God gave them over to to do things that shouldn't be done, as if wrath is really God's separation and backing away saying, okay, it's, if you really want to do this, you can do it. Uh, And I'm not going to jump in to stop you. But when we get to Romans chapter 2, you just turn the page. And there's a very different perspective of wrath. In chapter 2, verse 5, it says, You are storing up wrath for yourselves because of your stubbornness and your heart that refuses to change. God's just judgment will be revealed on the day of wrath. God will repay everyone based on their works. So we have two different views of wrath right within a page turn of the New Testament. Romans chapter one twenty four, wrath is like God's allowing people to go their way. God gave them over to do things that to, to ought that ought not to be done. And Romans chapter two verse 5 through 9, wrath is God's active punishment of misdeeds. And Paul and the biblical writers just didn't see a contradiction there. It was a paradox, not a contradiction. It was something that that was kind of two sides of the coin. In one sense, wrath is God's punishment for sin. In another sense, God's wrath is is letting sin go its course and backing away and and, and allowing sin to experience its natural consequence. So I think that's a helpful tension. It's very good to uh, know where these paradoxes lie. Hey, thanks, Carl. I really do appreciate the time it took for you to uh, prep for that conversation and especially under the circumstances with your wife, Michelle, uh, expecting to have a baby any day now, number four. So we're very excited for you and uh, and blessings upon you as you enter into this new stage of your family life. I also noticed as I was listening to the audio that, that Carl's very good about avoiding the masculine pronoun for God. It's something that uh, I struggle with. I'm I have uh, using the masculine pronoun as part of my native God language, and I do when I think of it, I try to avoid it, but sometimes the language can be so awkward without it that I still haven 't really resolved that issue and uh, and so I just want to let you know for those of you that find that troublesome uh, i I do try to avoid it i re- I should tell you that there was an instance where I really was upbraided by someone that said to me don't you realize that god doesn 't have a penis and Of course, I realize that, you know, Christian theology has never claimed that, or Christian theologians have never claimed that God had a physical body in that sense. Uh, Of course, God doesn't have physical body parts and genitalia, Uh, but the language is deeply metaphorical. So, and that direct leads us to the next topic. The next topic is, does God change God's mind? And it's so much easier to say, does God change his mind? And I probably would if I had been reminded by Carl, by Carl's usage. He's never mentioned this to me, but Carl is so careful with his usage on avoiding the masculine pronoun. So we'll say, does God change God's mind? And there are places in the scriptures that say yes. There are places in the scriptures that say no. And we'll be examining that topic. So I just want to encourage you to uh, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't, to rate and review and to share it with friends. We would be most grateful. Thanks. God bless. And the word of God is for the people of God. So thanks be to God.